Hello there, I'm Kiosa Ronin Beatmaker, and welcome to Lounge Ronin, all things, everything. To learn more about myself and how you can support Lounge Ronin, head over to my Patreon page at Ronin Art and Music. If you're interested in reaching out, follow me on social media, on Twitter, Ronin Art and Music, or at me at Kios Ronin, K-O-I-O-S-R-O-N-I-N. On Instagram, follow me at roninart underscore music. And if you prefer, hit me up at my email at roninartandmusic09 at gmail.com. And if you're listening to this on your preferred streaming service, please make sure to subscribe. If you're listening on YouTube, make sure to subscribe, leave a comment and a review, and slap that notification bell. On Apple Podcasts, Please make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave a review as this will help me and the podcast grow. Stay positive, stay focused, stay true, and much love. And on this episode, we're going to discuss the fall of Babylon. Now, I'm not too familiar with uh, the fall of Babylon. Uh, But, you know, I do know a little bit about the Tower of Babel and some of the interesting stories behind it. But I found some interesting, I found an interesting article, kind of breaks down the history and the, the collapse. And I figured we'd get into it, talk a little bit about it, and see what the fall of Babylon is all about. So without further ado, let's get into it. Alrighty. All right. Now, this article is written in June 2020 of 12th, the 12th of June 2020 uh, by DHWTY. The Monumental Fall of Babylon. What really shattered the empire? The fall of Babylon is a historical event that occurred in 15, I mean 15, 539 BC. This event saw the conquest of Babylon by the Archmado Emperor uh, named Cyrus the Great and marked the end of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. The fall of Babylon is reported by a number of ancient sources including Cyphrus Cylinder, the Greek historian Herodotus, as well as a number of books in the Old Testament. I didn't know that. Here we have the picture of the Tower of Babel by Petre Brugal, the Elder. That's beautiful. Massive tower. 
you know, what's interesting about the Tower of Babel is, you know, there are some stories that it was essentially kind of like a the the global hub where um, people were able to meet from all all corners of the world and essentially um, uh, communicate with each other almost uh, without the need of a um, of a translator. You know, I've heard some stories that it was like a, a, a almost like a, a a universal translator in itself that it allowed everyone to speak like a universal language. So there wasn't a uh, a con any uh there was clear communication, and that there was a certain god uh, or gods who you know weren't the biggest fans of humans destroyed the Tower of Babel, and that you know without that universal language, that ability to communicate seamlessly, you know, that creates um, paranoia, that creates distrust, that creates um, conflict. What I remember from the various, um, you know, little mini documentaries I've watched talking about it. Okay. Immense growth before the destruction of Babylon. The city of Babylon is located in modern-day Iraq, and its history stretches back to the 3rd millennium BC, when it was a small port town on the Euphrates River. At that time, Babylon was part of the Akkadian Empire. Over time, the town would grow and develop into one of the most important cities in ancient Mesopotamia. It was during the 18th century BC that Babylon became a major power in the region under the rule of the Amorite king Hammurabi. Hammurabi reigned from 1792 to 1750 BC, was the sixth ruler of the first dynasty of Babylon. During his long reign, he oversaw the great expansion of his empire, conquering the city-states of Elm, Larsa, Eshnua, and Mari, an act he regarded as part of a sacred mission to spread civilization, uh, no, as part, of the, as part of a sacred mission to spread civilization to all nations. By ousting the king of Assyria, uh, Hashem, Ishmael Dagan I, and making his son pay tribute, he made Babylon a major power in Mesopotamia. All right, I'm I'm curious about this guy Hammurabi. So let's let's pull him up a little bit. Let's get a uh, more of a deeper synopsis on this uh, sixth ruler but first king of Babylon. Russia. Alrighty. Okay, this was this article was written by uh, DHWTY again, and it was uh, released or published uh, August twenty eighteen of the thirteenth. All right, Amurabi, 
and his God-given code of laws. Now, I guess that would, you know, correlate to his uh, sacred mission to uh, to bring civilization to the lands. At that time, the gods of Anu and Anil, for the enactment of the well-being of the people, named me by my name, Hammurabi, and a pious prince who venerates the gods to make justice prevail in the land, to abolish the wicked and the evil, to prevent the strong from opposing the weak. Hammurabi's Code of Laws, Prologue. You know, Anu and Anil, you know, Enki, Enlil, uh, you know, Anunnaki, you get it. Although Hammurabi's Code of Laws is one of the most famous collections of laws from the ancient world, it is, uh, the world, it is certainly not the oldest. In fact, it is preceded by at least two other codes of laws. Namely, the laws of Ur-Nama, 2100 BC, and the laws of uh, Lipit-Ishtar, 1930 BC. It may be pointed out that these ancient Mesopotamian texts are not legal codes in, in the modern sense, i.e. collections of written laws compelled according to specific subject matters, civil code, penal code, etc., but were rather uh, compilations of laws carved in stone. Although these collections preceded what, that of Hammurabi's, it cannot be said that the latter borrowed directly from the former, as these were legal rules of political entities that were independent of each other. Excuse me, all. A little bit of some technical difficulties. Please talk amongst yourselves. And we're back. Hammurabi, ruler of the first dynasty. So, who was Hammurabi? Hammurabi reigned from 1792 to uh, uh, 1750 BC, was the sixth ruler of the first dynasty of Babylon. During his long reign, he oversaw the great expansion of his empire, conquering the city-states of Elam, Lassar, uh, Ishnua, and Mari. An act he regarded as part of his sacred mission to spread civilization to all nations. By ousting the king of Assyria, Ishmael Dagan I, and making his son pay tribute, he made Babylon a major power in Mesopotamia. Hammurabi's streamlined administration commissioned huge building blocks, improved agriculture, repaired and rebuilt infrastructure, enlarged and heightened the walls of the city and built extravagant temples dedicated to the gods. His focus was also military and conquest, 
but according to his own writings, his main goal was to improve the lives of those who lived under his rule. By the time of Hammurabi's death, Babylon was in control of the whole of Mesopotamia. Excuse me. Although his successors were not able to maintain this control, you know, as we all know, that's uh, an ongoing theme with great empires. You know, the, the sons never seem to be able to follow through. Uh, this may be due to a lack of an effective bureaucracy as his active participation on regional wars meant that he did not focus on establishing an administrative system that would ensure his continual ruling of his empire after his death. I stand corrected, I guess. And a picture we have a, a, is a depiction of Hammurabi. Man. Love to have a beard like that. Crimes and penalties. Despite the rapid uh, disintegration of his empire, Hammurabi's code of laws has survived the ravages of time, though it was only in the 20th century that they were rediscovered by archaeologists. These laws defined various types of crimes and penalties to be applied, for instance. If a fire breaks out in a man's house and a man who came to help put it out converts the household furnishings belonging to the household, that man shall be cast into that very fire. Hammurabi's Code of Laws, Laws 25. Damn. Despite the eye for an eye type of punishment such as above, Hammurabi's Law Codes allowed uh, different punishments to be meted out to persons of different social ranks. Thus, for instance, hmm, it is uh, if an uh, awul, upper-class person, should blind the eye of another awul, they shall blind his eye. If he should break the bone of another they shall break his bone. If he should blind the eye of a commoner or break the bone of a commoner, he shall weigh and deliver 60 shekels of silver. If he should blind the eye of an Aru slave or break the bone of an Aru slave, he shall weigh and deliver one half of his value in silver. Hammurabi's Codes of Laws. 196 to 199. That's interesting. Interesting. How for upper class, it seems like if the upper class were to harm one another, uh, they are, um, it's more personal, the punishment. But if they hurt just a regular, regular you know, commoner, you know, it's just, you know, 60 shekels and, you know, uh, a talking to. <laughs> but then if you were to, you know, injure, you know, a, uh, a, a upper class person's slave, 
he has to deliver half of his value to uh, the person whose slave was injured. And it's, you know, it's kind of funny because if you, if you really think about it, this is very applicable to Western uh, law. If you kind of take a second and think about it, because if you, if you notice, I'm sure it's been very pretty apparent to everyone. If you, if you notice how essentially, um, you know, the, the, the upper class, the the rich, the oligarchs, they they are treated very differently in terms of the um the criminal justice system. And even the way they deal with one another is on a whole different level. And it almost seems as if when one of these more richer upper class individuals, you know, wrongs another, they take it out, you know whether it's through the legal system or other means, but it's always personal. And, uh, and it affects uh, everything. And and this is just kind of like in, in one sense, you know, but, you know, for, for the regular common folk, it's either, you know, you just, you either get bought off or you get bought, you know, you get bought off or you, you, you get a buyout and, uh, and that's it. And they either get a slap on the wrist if you're lucky um, or they have to say an apology, and even that goes the same for their for their employees. How many employees of these crazy of these you know ultranational corporations who abuse their employees? You know they may have to pay a fine, you know pay maybe a hundred grand to like a couple million, and that's it. There's no jail time. You, they rarely ever see jail. But, you know, they will lose a portion of their stock or, you know, they'll get ousted from their own company, whatever it may be. Or, or you know, they'll, uh, you know, for the rest of their days be associated with a uh, convicted uh, pedophile, you know, <laughs> Bill Gates. But, you know, that, that comes par for the course when it's the upper class, right? You know, for them, it's always personal, but for us, you know, it's just a loose change, so to speak. Therefore, it can be seen that in some cases, an offender's punishment depended on the social status of his victim. Although some of these punishments are very harsh by modern standards, for example, if a son strikes his father they shall cut off his fingers. They were actually intended to prevent even worse acts of retribution carried out by the wronged person. Lasting legacy. Hammurabi was worshipped as a god by his subjects and was highly revered throughout his kingdom. Uh, uh, Commorations during his lifetime gave thanks for three main achievements, bringing victory in war, establishing peace, and fighting for justice. However, after his death, his military accomplishments were minimized and his reputation as a merciful king and the ideal lawgiver became the central aspect of his legacy. Which I think, you know, a little bit more of a more appealing legacy, if you ask me. 
But I, you know, I it, it kind of makes you wonder if Western, you know, oligarchs and and lawmen were a little bit somewhat inspired by uh, Hammurabi's uh, code of laws, uh, because the whole the whole idea of how depending on your social status depends on the type of law. Uh, depends on yeah, depends on the. Uh, the type of law you are you'll be treated with, even though in America they're essentially all the same on paper, but depending on, you know your, your your status will depend on, you know how much of that law will be applicable to you. Okay, and we're back to the main article. Well, I've got some technical difficulties. Yeah, no, we don't. So why are you... Okay, here we go. Sorry about that. All right, so yeah, Hammurabi streamlined administrations. He commissioned huge building projects, improved agriculture, repaired and rebuilt infrastructure and large, heightened the walls of the city and built extravagant temples dedicated to the gods. His focus was also military and conquest, but according to his main writings, his main goal was to improve the lives of those who lived in his rule. By the time of Hammurabi's death, Babylon was in control of the whole of Mesopotamia. Although his successors were not able to maintain his control, this may be due to the lack of an effective bureaucracy as his active participation on regional wars meant that he did not focus on establishing an administrative system that would ensure the continual control, continual running of his empire after his death. Thus, this first Babylonian empire was short-lived, and it soon fell under the dominion of foreigners, including the Hittites, uh, the Kassites, and the Assyrians. So, this picture here is a panorama of the Babylon ruins of Hilla, Iraq. Hmm. Beautiful. <laughs> uh, destruction of Neo-Assyrian Empire and the birth of a new Babylon. Following the death of the of uh, uh, Ashur Banipal around sixteen twenty seven BC, uh, civil war broke out in the Neo-Assyrian Empire, causing it to weaken. Many subjects of the Neo-Assyrian Empire seized this opportunity to revolt. Uh, one of these was a Chaldean ch uh, chief by the name of uh, Nabopolassar, who formed an alliance with the Medes, the Persians, the, the Sicians, and the Sumerians. No, the Chimerians? I think it's Chimerians. This coalition succeeded in destroying the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Having gained independence from the Assyrian 
uh, Nabalassar established the Neo-Babylonian Empire with Babylon as its capital. When he died, he left his son with immense stories of wealth and a strong Babylonian city. This ruler set the groundwork for the impressive Neo-Babylonian Empire, leaving his son Nebuchadnezzar II with the ideal circumstances to bring Babylonia to the forefront of ancient society. And that is exactly what his son did. Now, I wanted to check this video out real quick because before we jump into the second part, I figured it'd be good to catch this video a little bit and get some more. Um, well, actually, you know what? We'll save the videos for last. How about that? Yeah, that's what we'll do. Having gained independence from the Assyrians, Nebuchadnezzar established a Neo-Babylonian empire with Babylon as its capital. Uh, when he died, he left his son with immense stories of wealth and, and a strong Babylonian city. This ruler set the groundwork for the impressive Neo-Babylonian empire leaving his son Nebuchadnezzar II with the ideal circumstances to bring Babylonian to the forefront of ancient society. And that is exactly what his son did. What the son, what the son did. The Neo-Babylonian Empire reached its zenith during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar II, who succeeded uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar in around 605 BC, during Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which lasted until around 562 BC, the Neo-Babylonian Empire was in control of Babylonia, Assyria, parts of Assyr Minor, uh, Phoenicia, Israel, and Northern Arabia. All right. Now, I wanted to pull up an article about him as well. So let's jump into a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar. I love that name, Nebuchadnezzar. Man, that's dope. With a name like that, it makes you want to rule. <laughs> All right. Now, this was uh, written in 2015 of August 16th by Riley Winters. Born in 634 BC in what is now called Neo-Babylonia, Nebuchadnezzar II would one day become one of the greatest ancient Babylonian kings. The firstborn son of his predecessor, Nebolassar, from a young age, Nebuchadnezzar showed promise as a future leader of uh, Babylon. Defeating the Egyptian armies at uh, uh, Karchemesh, 605 BC, and thereby subduing both Syria and Phoenicia to Babylonian rule before he had even taken the throne himself. Well, that's impressive. A worthy heir to, Neb uh, to Nabopolazar.
When Nebuchadnezzar uh, died, he left behind immense stories of wealth in a strong Babylonian city with when it, within which his son could thrive. Having freed Babylonia from the rule of the Assyrians, Nebuchadnezzar's father set, set the groundwork for the impressive Neo-Babylonian Empire. Yeah, uh, the, yeah, leaving Nebuchadnezzar with the ideal circumstance to bring Babylonia to the forefront of ancient society and that it is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar II did. Nebuchadnezzar marries uh, Amethyst and the alliance continues. And above we see uh, um, Danielle interpreting uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Interesting. This is a little photo. It's a little hard to make out. Nebuchadnezzar uh, marries, yeah, okay, we got that. Prior to his succession to the throne, Nebuchadnezzar married Amatice of Media, the purported daughter or granddaughter of King Cyraxis of Media. Nebuchadnezzar's accomplice in the Babylonian fight against Assyrian rule. This marriage was intended to ensure that the alliance forced between Medes and the Babylonians would continue strong and unwavering in years to come. Nebuchadnezzar's relationship with the beautiful Amidas would later result in one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. A great war leader. Nebuchadnezzar was considered within this time to be one of the greatest war leaders in the known world. In his quest to make Babylon the most beautiful city-state in the East, Nebuchadnezzar engaged in numerous wars with the aim of increasing the influence and reach of Babylonia. It is he who said to have driven the Jews out of Babylonia later capturing Jerusalem in 1597 BC and then destroying the first temple, also known as Solomon's Temple, and the city itself in 1587 BC. Wow. So the picture uh, here is uh, the burning of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar's army. Wow. It's intense. He and his armies went up against the Egyptians and the Assyrians once again, defeating them both, then successfully managed to control all the trade routes in Mesopotamia from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean by subduing the Persians and the Palestinians. The unflattering uh, descriptions of Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible. Hmm, I didn't even know he was in the Bible. Look at that. Although uh, Nebuchadnezzar's military and political accomplishments were great, he was not always portrayed in the good light with which many scholars describe him. The Bible in particular, in, it, in the text through which Nebuchadnezzar is widely recognized, describes the Babylonian king in a much more barbaric fashion, most evidently in the text accounts of Nebuchadnezzar's capture of Jerusalem. Furthermore, 
It is within the book of Daniel that the mention of Nebuchadnezzar's bout of insanity first arises. A streak of seven years in which the king lives in the wild, having supposedly been mad by his greed and pride. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of bird. Daniel 4.33 And uh, a picture is of Nebuchadnezzar by William Blake. He is naked. He is, seems like he's like outside of a cave he's got a long beard um he looks like bigfoot with um just a, uh with hair on his head and his beard and no hair on his body that's essentially what the picture is for my uh podcast listeners out there if you can use your imagination Just imagine Bigfoot with no hair and a red beard and hair. (laughs) Though uh, this is another anecdote for which Nebuchadnezzar is highly known, scholars are uncertain whether this tale is a genuine or metaphorical, or even if it truly happened to Nebuchadnezzar and not one of his successors. Regardless, this bout of insanity did nothing to quell Nebuchadnezzar's kingship. As after these seven years, Nebuchadnezzar returned to his uh, his place as the leader of Neo-Babylonia. Hmm. This is kind of like similar to like, um, you know, like, you know, those... The, the missing years of Jesus Christ or, you know, you know, where was Da Vinci during, I forgot how many years, like for a year, I think they don't know where he was. Um, some speculate he was uh, traveling with pirates. Others say he was hanging out with aliens. Take your pick. No, Could have been a little bit of both. All right. The death of Nebuchadnezzar and the decline of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar II was succeeded by his son, Amel Marduk, upon his death in 1562 BC. Though little of Amel Marduk's uh, reign remains, it is not until the succession of now, Bunius in 555 BC that Nebuchadnezzar's great empire had a, st- a steady leader again, who himself was succeeded by the Persian leader Cyrus the Great in f- uh, f- uh, 53, five, 539 BC. Good Lord, what's up with me? All right, uh, the picture we have here is of Cyrus the Great in the battle in battle, uh, the palace of Versace's uh, France. That is where the picture is um, held. Until Cyrus the Great took control of Babylonia, it merged, uh, it merged, uh, wait, after Babylonia and merged it with his already large Persian empire, 
Nebuchadnezzar's empire was one of the largest empires in the East. Interesting. Very interesting. All right. Let's get back to the main article. Now that we have more of an in-depth understanding of Nebuchadnezzar, hope you guys enjoyed that. All right. Okay. Okay. Nebuchadnezzar is most remembered today for a handful of important facts. Firstly, he is documented for driving the Jews out of Babylon, capturing the city of Jerusalem in 597 BC, and destroying the first temple and that city in uh, 587 BC. He is also generally credited with the construction of two major features of Babylon. The Ishtar Gate in 575 BC and the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which are considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There is, however, some contention if Nebuchadnezzar II can really receive recognition for creating the Hanging Gardens. Even more exciting and controversial is a proposal that this king ordered the construction of the Tower of Babel, but not by that name. The closest candidate for this construction is said to be uh, the Etamanaki the Eta of Babylon. This was a ziggurat dedicated to Marduk, the patron god of Babylon. And uh, the picture we have is by Rene uh, Antoine uh, Husasse, 1697. Nebuchadnezzar giving royal orders to the construction of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon to please his uh, consort, Mitis. In Mitis, yeah. How did Babylon fall? Did. Uh, Nabonidus rule contribute to the destruction of Babylon. And I believe that's his son. Yeah. The kings who succeeded Nebuchadnezzar were much less capable than him and had rather short reigns. And the decade that followed Nebuchadnezzar's de Nebuchadnezzar II's death, the Neo-Babylonian Empire had four different rulers, the last of whom was uh, Nabonidus, who reigned from 556 BC to the fall of Babylon in 539 BC. Nebuchadnezzar reigned for a total of 17 years and is remembered for his restoration of the region's ancient agricultural and cultural traditions, hence earning him the nickname the, Arche the Archaeologist King <laughs> among modern-day historians. That's interesting. Nevertheless, he was unpopular with his subjects, especially the priests, the priests of Marduk, as he had suppressed the cult of Marduk in favor of the moon god Sin. Hmm. In a previous Ancient Origins article, also notes that in some ways, the ruler was not very attentive to Babylon. During many years of his kingship, 
Nabonidus was absent at the Arabian oasis of Taima. The reasons for his long absence remain a matter of controversy, with series ranging from illness to madness to an interest in religious archaeology. Interesting. Why would he have? Hmm. And here we have a, a, a stone carving of Nabonidus in relief, showing him praying to the moon, sun, and Venus. Did I pull up an article about him? Yeah, I did. Let's pull up. I got an article about him. And uh, let's get some more intel on this guy. Some, uh, I'm enjoying getting these little snippets of intel to just kind of further expand on this character. Or I should say on the history of Babylon. I think it's important to provide further context. All right, the Lost Years of Nabonidus, last king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Okay, now we read that. We read that um, paragraph already. So we'll skip to this one. All right, in most ancient accounts, Nabonidus is depicted as a royal anomaly. His mother is believed to have been a priestess of the moon god Sin, to whom Nabonidus was unusually and obsessively devoted to. A little bit of that Oedipus Rex syndrome, I think. As King Nabonidus was, was maniled by the priestess of the Babylonian chief god Marduk, it is believed this was caused by Nabonidus' overt devotion to Sin and his lack of attention to the city's important New Year's festivals. Uh, we have a, this looks like a, a metal drawing, metal carving. Uh, the seal of the high priestess of the moon god Sin, dating back to 21 BCE, Nominidas' devotion to Sin was highly unusual in that Marduk had been the chief god of Babylon for several centuries. Hmm. I think I think there may have been a, a much larger uh, players at hand. Whether or not it's that Oedipus Rex syndrome or outside entities. It is after Nabonidus launched successful campaigns in Edom and Sicilia that he left Babylon. Residing at a rich desert oasis in Taman in Arabia, returning only after many years. In the meantime, his son, uh, Balthazar, ruled from Babylon. Nabonidus returned to the capital in time to lead his armies against the ascendant forces of Persia under Cyrus the Great. Nabonidus eventually surrendered to the Persian forces in 539 BC and was allowed to live out his life in relative freedom. 
The end of his reign marks the beginning of the Persian Empire and the end of the Babylonian captivity of the Jews. Interesting. But what happened in the lost years of Nabonidus? Why did he abandon the city he was ruling over? And what did he do during his time in Tama? So here we have a, a stone tablet. It's called the Nabonidus Chronicles, and it tells the story of the rule of Nabonidus. It's from the British Museum. It is thought that Nabonidus first became interested in Tamna during his campaign against Edom. Tama was an important oasis from which a lucrative Arabian trade routes could be controlled. However, why Nabonidus stayed for so long, about 10 years, uh, remains a mystery. Hmm. One theory is that he was comfortable in Babylon, which was the center of Marduk worship, where he was expected to perform public rites at centering on Marduk cult during the annual New Year's festival. On the fifth day of the festival, the king was required to submit himself to Marduk in the presence of the high priest, who would temporarily strip him of his crown and royal insignia, returning them only after the king prayed for forgiveness and received a hard slap in the face from the priest. Moreover, on the eighth day, the king had to implore all the gods to support and honor Marduk, an act which may have been unacceptable to Nabonidus if he was devoted to sin as supreme. Hmm. So ritual humiliation. Interesting. And this is a drawing that depicts New Year's festivals honoring Marduk. Some have suggested that Tama was attractive to uh, Nabonidus as an archaeological site where he might find sacred inscriptions or prophecies related to his own spiritual quest. What a hippie. <laughs> this man would have had a good time at Burning Man, that's for sure. Another possibility is that the king had become seriously ill and went to the oasis of Tama to recover. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, a fragment known as the Prayer of Nabonidus relates that Nabonidus suffered an ulcer, causing him to retreat from civilization and stayed in Tamana until he was healed by a Jewish, Jewish exorcist after praying to the Hebrew God. I... Nabonidus was afflicted with an evil ulcer for seven years, and far from men I was driven until I prayed to the Most High God. An exorcist pardoned my sins. He was a Jew from among the children of the exile of Judah. During my stay at Tama, I prayed to the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and, st and wood, stone and lime because I thought and considered them gods. Hmm. This legend may explain a confusing issue in the book of Daniel, in which the king in question is called uh, Nebuchadnezzar. However, Nebuchadnezzar, 
Dejnar, I'm sorry, I'm butchering this one, son is named Belazar, which was in fact the name of Nabunidus' son, who reigned in his steed in his stead while Nabunidus was at Taima. It may thus be the case that the book of Daniel confuses Nabunidus with Nebuchadnezzar. However, Daniel describes its king's disease as a type of madness rather than an ulcer, saying he was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like claws of a bird. Okay, yeah, so we see, remember, we, we, we read an article that talked about this. Um, so it almost seems like, you know, you have two narratives being told. And, you know, and I wonder, and this just kind of popped into my head, if they purposely made it seem like it was on, that it was never, uh, That it was um oh god I just I just I just had it and I just lost it let me see sorry my dog just coughed behind you you heard it. So yeah, I wonder if there was a bit of a, a conflict here because of um Nebuchadnezzar's lack of worshiping Marduk. And you have that tendency with, with anything where they will um oh god, what's what's the word? Defame somebody uh with uh with a false story. I'm wondering if that's a little bit of what we're seeing here in terms of the Bible, so, which as, you know, no, no, you know, no diss on the Bible, but we know they tend to um, obfuscate things, copy stories from previous um, religions and civilizations, but we're not here for that. Anyways, it is now known that during his stay in Taima, uh, Nabonidus adored the oasis with a full royal complex, most of which has come to light during recent excavations. Regarding Nabonidus' return to Babylon, this may have had to do with the mounting threat of Cyrus and growing disagreements with um, Belshazzar, who was relieved of his command directly after Nabonidus returned, along with a number of administrators. The Nabonidus Chronicle indicates that the New Year's festival was indeed celebrated by the king in Nabonidus' final year. Nabonidus' successor Cyrus brought an end to the Neo-Babylonian Empire and initiated the ascendancy of Persia. Cyrus' policy of returning the religious artifacts and priests to their home sanctuary soon extended the empire's western regions as well as he allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem with their sacred vessels and begin rebuilding the temple. Thus, the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign also marks the beginning 
of the end of the Babylonian exile of the Jews, as well as the beginning of the Persian Empire. So you can see why I was saying that because, you know, as we know that Christ was a Jew. Um, so I, would, I could see that they would want to make uh, Nebuchadnezzar seem like the bad guy. Um, because and make it and make it seem as if he was the one that went mad and uh, was running the muck acting like a like a wild animal because of his um, persecution towards the Jews in particular as well as other religious uh, groups which is interesting All right. So we, we, we covered, let's see. Okay, we covered that. Yeah, we, okay, so we essentially covered, okay, here we go. Perfect. Um, I was just skipping over a couple paragraphs because we essentially covered uh, those paragraphs when we just broke down uh, Nebuchadnezzar. All right. When did Babylon fall? In the meantime, the Persians to the east were growing in power under the leadership of Cyrus the Great. In 549 BC, the Medes were defeated by the Persians, who then proceeded to conquer the territory around Babylon. Finally, in 539 BC, the city of Babylon itself was taken by the Persians. The fall of Babylon marked the end of Neo-Babylonian Empire. The momentous event has been recorded by a number of ancient historians, though due to inconsistencies, it is difficult to reconstruct the actual events that took place. The Greek writers Herodotus and Xenophon report that Babylon fell after it was besieged. On the other hand, Cyrus Cylinder and Nebuchadnezzar's Chronicle, which is part of the Babylonian Chronicles, claim that Babylon was conquered by the Persians without fight. Moreover, Cyrus Cylinder presents the Persian king as chosen by Marduk to capture Babylon. Interesting. And uh, the picture we have is of Cyrus the Great. Uh, it says Cyrus the Great is said in the Bible to have liberated the Jews from the Babylonian captivity. So you can see why in the Bible they would paint Nebuchadnezzar as, you know, this crazy guy because of his treatment towards the Jews. So it's, it's just interesting. Um, you know, defamation was was highly popularized back then in the ancient times. <laughs> The, the fall of Babylonian prop the, the fall of the Babylon prophecy. Uh, what story does it tell? The fall of Babylon is significant to biblical history as it is mentioned in a number of books in the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, a story similar to that found in Cyrus, found in Cyrus Cylinder, is told. Instead of Marduk, it was the God of Israel who chose Cyrus. 
After the fall of Babylon, the Jews who had been exiled since their subjugation by Nebuchadnezzar II were allowed to return home. In another book, the book of Daniel, the fall of Babylon was already prophesied during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar II. According to this book, the king had a dream in which he saw a statue with a head of gold, breast and armor, breast and armor of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, and legs of iron and feet of and feet of iron mixed with clay. The statue was destroyed by a rock, then which then turned into a mountain, filling the whole earth. The interpretation of the king's dream by the prophet Daniel was that the statue represents four successive kingdoms, the first of which being the Neo-Babylonian Empire, all of which would be destroyed by the kingdom of God. And the picture we have is the writings, the writing on the wall, Daniel and the king, Balazar, the fall of the and the fall of Babylon. And that concludes this article. You know, it's it's interesting just kind of like you the the comparing and contrasting of the story of Basadar and what really happened and what was um created for the Bible. And this is a whole thing when it comes to the narrative. You know, you, you've got to really question the narrative because more than likely it, it turns out that, uh, you know, they're, they're blatantly um, lying about things. And not only lying about things, but just, you know, men, completely taking one story and and having it be with one person that happened, you know, 50 years prior, it's, it's really interesting. And it just also, it's kind of like, it, it just shows you how, you know, um, Just how you really can't trust any narrative until you you really do your own research and you really look into it. I, I, it's just it's just fascinating to me. Um, it it really is fascinating to me. Yeah. Very interesting. But let's check out these videos real quick. Oh, wait, do I gotta? Yeah, give me a second. Let me. Let's 
pull these up real quick. Interesting. You got to always question the narrative because, you know, as we're, you know, as we learn more and more about the, you know, the true history, as I like to put it, the, the, the hidden history you begin to you, you begin to see the discrepancies or even the conflict of interest and even in this story with you know never Knezer the second you know the fact that because of his treatment towards the jews um you now see in in these stories in the bible where they'll paint him in a bad light cuz you know we have to remember that um, you know, Christ was a, a Jew. Why are you acting like that? Give me a second, guys. I apologize. It's weird. Okay. All right. The fall of Babylon. Oh, now I know why it's doing that. Shoot. 
sorry about that. I got it fixed. Let me start this over again. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just think every day the more I, I, I do research and read and, and things, I just, it's like every day you, you keep on realizing, you know, how much we really don't know. It's so wild. Can you guys hear it? Hold on, I don't think you guys can hear it. That's so weird. Let me start it over again. I apologize, I don't think you guys could hear it. Still not working? Oh, that's so weird.
Okay, hold on. Let me try one more time. If I can't get it to work, we're going to wrap it up. Okay. It's not working. Well, that's unfortunate. Don't don't know why. Things don't want to work tonight. It was only a short little video. It was only six minutes long. Bummer. I'll try one more time. One more time. One more time. See if I can get it to work. time see if it works The Fall of Babylon okay. is a historical yeah. event that occurred in 539 BC. This event saw the conquest of Babylon by the Achaemenid Empire under Cyrus the Great and marked the end of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. The Fall of Babylon is reported by a number of ancient sources, including the Cyrus Cylinder, the Greek historian Herodotus, as well as a number of books in the Old Testament. The city of Babylon is located in modern-day Iraq, and its history stretches back to the 3rd millennium BC, when it was a small port town on the Euphrates River. At that time, Babylon was part of the Akkadian Empire. Over time, the town would grow and develop into one of the most important cities in ancient Mesopotamia. It was during the 18th century BC that Babylon became a major power in the region under the rule of the Amorite king Hammurabi. The first Babylonian Empire, however, was short-lived as it soon fell under the dominion of foreigners, including the Hittites, the Kassites, and the Assyrians. Following the death of Ashurbanipal around 627 BC, civil war broke out in the Neo-Assyrianipal. This, this is part two: the destruction of the Neo-Assyrian. Following the death of Ashurbanipal. Around 627 BC, civil war broke out in the Neo-Assyrian Empire, caused it to weaken. Many subjects of the Neo-Assyrian Empire seized this opportunity to revolt. 
One of these was a Chaldean chief by the name of Nabopolassar, who formed an alliance with the Medes, Persians, Scythians, and Sumerians. This coalition succeeded in destroying the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Having gained independence from the Assyrians, Nabu-Palassar established the Neo-Babylonian Empire, with Babylon as its capital. The empire reached its zenith during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar II, who succeeded Nabu-Palassar in around 605 BC. During Nebuchadnezzar II's reign, which lasted until around 562 BC, the Neo-Babylonian Empire was in control of Babylonia, Assyria, parts of Asia Minor, Phoenicia, Israel, and Northern Arabia. The kings who succeeded Nebuchadnezzar II were much less capable than him and had rather short reigns. In the decade that followed Nebuchadnezzar II's death, the Neo-Babylonian Empire had four different rulers, the last of whom was Nebuchadnezzar, who reigned from 556 BC to the fall of Babylon. In 539 BC, Nabonidus reigned for a total of 17 years and is remembered for his restoration of the region's ancient architectural and cultural traditions, hence earning him the nickname, the Archaeologist King, among modern-day historians. Nevertheless, he was unpopular with his subjects, especially the priests of Marduk, as he had suppressed the cult of Marduk, the patron god of Babylon, in favor of the moon god Sin. In the meantime, the Persians to the east were growing in power under the leadership of Cyrus the Great. In 549 BC, the Medes were defeated by the Persians, who then proceeded to conquer the territory around Babylon. Finally, in 539 BC, the city of Babylon itself was taken by the Persians. The fall of Babylon marked the end of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. This momentous event has been recorded by a number of ancient historians. When did Babylon fall? Due to inconsistencies, it is difficult to reconstruct the actual events that took place. The Greek writers Herodotus and Xenophon report that Babylon fell after it was besieged. On the other hand, the Cyrus Cylinder and the Nebuchadnezzar Chronicle, which is part of the Babylonian Chronicles, claim that Babylon was conquered by the Persians without a fight. Moreover, the Cyrus Cylinder presents the Persian king as chosen by Marduk to capture Babylon. The Fall of Babylon Prophecy. What story does it tell? Lastly, the Fall of Babylon is significant for biblical history as it is mentioned in a number of books in the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, a story similar to that found in the Cyrus Cylinder is told. Instead of Marduk, it was the God of Israel who chose Cyrus. After the Fall of Babylon, the Jews, who had been exiled since their subjugation by Nebuchadnezzar II, were allowed to return home. In another book, the Book of Daniel, the fall of Babylon was already prophesied during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar II. According to this book, the king had a dream in which he saw a statue with a head of gold, breasts and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron mixed with clay. The statue was destroyed by a rock, which then turned into a mountain, filling the whole earth. The interpretation of the king's dream by the prophet Daniel was that the statue represents four successive kingdoms, the first of which being the Neo-Babylonian Empire, all of which would be destroyed by the kingdom of God.
Nice. Nice. Short and sweet, straight to the point. There's another article, another video I saw. When it comes to citing on the banks of the river Euphrates in what is now southeastern Iraq. Around 2200 BC, a dynasty or rule by one family was founded in Babylon. The best-known king of that dynasty was Hammurabi, who ruled for 42 years from 1792 BC to 1750 BC. Hammurabi set up limits for maximum prices and minimum wages and gave his kingdom a fair system of taxation. He introduced language reforms. He gave rights to slaves with the help of which they could own property, conduct business, borrow money, and even buy their freedom. Many beautiful temples and palaces were built during his reign. Hammurabi compiled the first law of codes in history, known by his name, Code of Hammurabi. The stone slab on which the code of Hammurabi was carved was discovered in Susa. I highly recommend for my podcast listeners to check out the live stream so you can see the video because these animations are, are quite comical. Or Iran in 1901. It contained nearly 300 legal provisions. Precise penalties were fixed for offenses ranging from matters such as false accusations, witchcraft, military service, land and business regulation, family laws, wages, loans and debts. The main principle of the code was that the strong shall not injure the weak. The punishments were based on the principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. For instance, if a house fell on its owner, the builder was heavily fined or put to death. After the death of Hammurabi, the old Babylonian empire lost most of its territory to the invading Assyrians. During the 700 BC, the Assyrian empire took control of Babylon and in 689 BC, King Sennacherib of Assyria destroyed Babylon. Eleven years later, Sennacherib's son, Esarhaddon, rebuilt Babylon. In 626 BC, the Babylon military leader, Nabopolassar, became the king of Babylon and gained control of Babylon from the Assyrians. Babylon achieved its greatest glory under the reign of Nabopolassar's son, 
Nebuchadnezzar II. Nebuchadnezzar II, King of Babylon, from 605 to 532 BC, was a tireless builder who made Babylon the most splendid city of its time. Herodotus, a 5th century Greek historian, is known as the father of history. Herodotus described Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon as surpassing in splendor any city of the known world. The Babylonians used glazed tiles to cover mud brick walls. The city of Babylon was protected by thick high walls decorated with motives of glazed tiles. A wide moat surrounded the inner walls. People entered and left the city through eight bronze gates. Of these eight gateways in the massive walls, each sacred to a different god, the most impressive was the Ishtar Gate. The Ishtar Gate was built in honor of the Babylonian goddess of love and battle. The gate stood 50 feet high on a paved avenue called Processional Way, which led into Babylon. Its walls were decorated with figures of dragons, lions and bulls made of colored glazed tiles. Babel is the Hebrew name for Babylon. The Tower of Babel was an immense cigarette with seven stories and a small shrine at the top. There is a story told in the Bible about the construction of the Tower of Babel. When the city was being built, along with a tower that would reach the heavens, God did not want the tower to get completed. So he made the builders talk different languages so that they could not understand each other. The builders stopped working and scattered over the earth. The Greeks referred to the Hanging Gardens of Babylon as one of the seven wonders of the world. Traces of these gardens have been found in the form of a huge arch with thick layers of earth on the roof. In chambers beneath the structure were three shafts which probably had pumps for raising the water to the gardens above. The name Hanging Gardens is probably derived from the fact that the gardens were on a huge stepped pyramid, its ledges covered with earth and planted with flowers and trees. There may have been footpaths winding up the gardens. The Babylonians were a Semitic race who absorbed the culture of the original Sumerian inhabitants. They were also agriculturists and greatly improved upon the farming methods pioneered by the Sumerians. Temples were used as schools. Boys were taught reading, writing and arithmetic, while the girls were trained in dance and music. Lack of timber, stone and metal made trade necessary. Trade and commerce flourished. Trade was mostly through barter system or exchange of goods. 
silver coins were also used as a medium of exchange. Skilled artisans like carpenters, blacksmiths, goldsmiths, weavers, potters and metal workers were encouraged and they made good progress in their respective professions. They built ziggurats or temple towers for their gods. Old Sumerian gods continued to be worshipped but the Babylon god Marduk, the young bull of the sun, was the head of the pantheon. Since the Babylonians were subject to unpredictable and disastrous floods, they propitiated river gods. They also believed that changes in nature and in the fortunes of people were ruled by the movements of the heavenly bodies in the sky. The religion of the Babylonians combined scientific observation of the sky and weather, prayer to the various gods who were in control of these things, and magic. The thing that's different about a verbal vacation home? You always have the whole place to yourself. No stranger at the dinner table making things awkward, or in another room taking up space. It's just you and your people. Because why would you ever share your vacation home with someone you wouldn't share your vacation with? In the town where I was born This led to the study of astronomy and astrology. Babylon is said to be the birthplace of astronomy. The Babylonians did not believe in life after death and concentrated on improving their life on earth. For instance, they developed mathematical methods of measuring. The sundial was used to measure time during the day and the water clock during the night. The sundial is believed to have been used in Babylon as early as 2000 BC. The Babylonian sundial consisted of a hollow half sphere set with its edge flat. A small bead or stick was fixed at its center. During the day, the shadow of the bead or stick moved in a circular arc divided into 12 equal parts. These were called temporary hours because they changed with the seasons. They also developed a calendar based on the movements of the moon. The year was divided into 12 months of 29 to 30 days each. As mentioned earlier, Babylon rose to great heights during Hammurabi's rule. Hammurabi's successors were unpopular and the empire became weak. After 1595 BC, Babylon succumbed to the attacks by the warring Aryan tribes like the Hittites and the Kassites who came from the northeast. In 626 BC, the Babylonian military leader, 
Nabopolassar became the king of Babylon and gained its control from the Assyrians. Babylon once again prospered under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. In 539 BC, Persian invaders captured Babylon and overthrew the new Babylonian Empire, and Babylonia became an important part of the Persian Empire. In 331 BC, Alexander the Great of Macedonia gained control of Babylon and made it the capital of his realm. After his death in 323 BC in Babylon, one of Alexander's general, Seleucus, became the king of Babylonia and the surrounding areas. Seleucus founded Seleucia, a new capital on the river Tigris. People started migrating to Seleucia, and through the years, the deserted Babylon fell to ruins. Before the Persian attack, Babylon's prosperity had been dwindling due to the silting of the rivers. Its religion was weakening due to contact with Jewish slaves. The whole area was finally impoverished when the Mongol Hulagu destroyed the irrigation system in the 13th century. I love these little um <clears throat> these little documentaries like this. It's easy for us to digest and to to go with the flow. But I just wanted to share that as well with everyone. Um just in case I know the article there was a lot to digest. And I figured, you know, watching these two little videos at the end would help to make it easier to digest all that information. And to be honest, I think I might do a follow-up follow video on Cyrus uh, the Cylinder, or Cyrus Cylinder. He seemed really interesting, and there's a pretty interesting article about him. Um, and I think it'd be cool to connect that to uh, the fall of Babylon. It, clearly, he had a very serious, influential impact on restoring Babylon to its uh, heydays. So I'm looking forward to doing another live stream on that. I'll probably do it later this week just to keep it fresh. And uh, tomorrow, I'll be doing another long form live stream. Again, we're going to be talking about the supposed speculation of apparently of a 
global civilization of Tamana. I'm looking forward to breaking that one down and, and seeing what kind of information we will learn and uncover and see if it connects to any of my patterns I've seen in my various research and listening to podcasts and reading articles and uh, videos and what have you. So that's what we have going on for the week. Um, we'll see what we have planned. What's t- today's Tuesday? I might do another. Um, I'll probably live stream again Thursday. Try to aim for doing that one during the day. And uh, maybe during the day on Thursday, I'll, I'll do that one on Cyrus Cylinder. And uh, we'll see what we're going to have for the weekend. I'm not sure what I'm going to stream about during the weekend. But uh, you guys will know soon enough if you see the thumbnail appear. But until next time, please, if you made it this far, make sure to hit that like button. Leave a comment with your thoughts below. Ring that notification bell. And make sure to subscribe. And if you're new to the channel, please leave some constructive criticism and share this stream with any other curious minds out there. And until next time, stay positive, stay focused, stay true. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Lounge Ronin. To learn more about myself and how you can support Lounge Ronin, head over to my Patreon page at Ronin Art and Music. If you're interested in reaching out, follow me on my social media on Twitter, Ronin Art and Music, or at me at Kios Ronin, K-O-I-O-S-R-O-N-I-N. On Instagram, follow me at Ronin Art underscore music. And if you prefer, hit me up at my email at Ronin Art and Music 09 at gmail.com. And if you're listening to this on your preferred streaming service, please make sure to subscribe. If you're listening on YouTube, make sure to subscribe, leave a comment and a review and slap that notification bell. On Apple Podcasts, please make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast and leave a review as this will help me and the podcast grow. Stay positive, stay focused, stay true and much love.